when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, we are going long on the politics of protest and the short-term legacies of movements that have become an essential part of the public discourse. First up, we're welcoming journalist and author Sarah Jaffe to the program to discuss her forthcoming book, Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. The book documents everything she's learned about the various protest movements that have emerged in post-crash America after spending years in the field with them. Meanwhile, we're also marking the two-year anniversary of the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and the protest movements that emerged shortly thereafter. To consider what effect they've had in changing the conversation on the criminal justice system in Ferguson, Baltimore, and beyond. Finally, we're pleased to welcome Zephyr Teachout back to the show. She's now officially the Democratic Party's nominee for the House of Representatives in New York's 19th District. And after a long career in taking on big issues like government corruption and economic justice, we'll ask her about the challenges of paring down her message to fit a House race and whether or not in this 2016 election, the bigger ideas about policy and governance might come from down ticket races. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Julia Craven, Arthur Delaney and Ryan Riley. We're going to have all of that, plus our regular update from the perfectly sane and normal presidential race where nobody at all is suggesting that anyone should be assassinated. No siree. But here's what happened first. Hello to everyone in the United States of America and the world abroad. Welcome to another edition of So That Happened. Your weekly digest of stuff that happened. I'm Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the President of the Huffington Post, and I'm joined by Arthur J. Delaney. Live from Rio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who is in Rio de Janeiro for some reason. And Zach D. Carter. Live from Sri Lanka. Yes, also a lie. <laughs> I actually don't know if your middle name is Jay. It is. Oh, well, good guess Jefferson. on my part. Arthur Jefferson Delaney. <laughs> I wanted to start the show today to just like have a sort of like polite discussion of how wonderfully substantive and polite the presidential election has been lately. Hasn't it been just, oh, so uh, it's been magnificent, right? Yeah, it's uh, really been a uh, great discourse Exchange of so, ideas, public debate. Re- really sane and reasonable. Donald Trump threatened to kill Hillary Clinton. Okay. Oh. Just gonna... oh. We That's were what gonna... happened. You, you ruined our game. Yeah, you did. Yeah. You did. Yeah. By reminding us about how America's on the... I can't freaking take it anymore. I'll be honest. I just can't freaking take it anymore. I. It, it is Trump's horribleness has just given Clinton this complete freedom to just say nothing and not present any ideas. I feel like the campaign has just become what terrible, awful thing will Donald Trump do next? He sort of fainted on Monday at being like, oh, I'm going to be someone who cares about policy. 
in which he just attached the Paul Ryan agenda right. to his anti-free trade But we're learning, we're learning agenda. when he talks about policy, that's when he's off message. That's, well, <laughs> yeah. well, this is what happens, and there's a clear pattern now. When he spends time talking from a teleprompter like he did on Monday, his level of uh, anxiety builds and craziness gets pent up inside him. And then the next day, he'll go nutso. Oh. Like after the RNC, he gives a speech for 70 minutes. Yeah. Totally like sober, regular, uh, lying that, you with thought statistics. that was sober? Yeah. <laughs> that was terrifying. Yeah, it was just like traditional misleading statistics and stuff. And then the next day, he's like, woo! Rafael Cruz assassinated JFK. <laughs> And everyone's like, oh, my God, sir. It and is. that's the same thing that happened on Monday, teleprompter speech. Yeah. On Tuesday, kill Hillary Clinton. I think that he has part- like, like we, sh- we should probably play the clip here, right? So oh, yeah. You guys, so you guys don't think we're making this up. I'm sure you've already heard it, but here's, here's what it is. Hillary wants to abolish, essentially abolish, the Second Amendment. By the way, and if she gets to pick... If she gets to pick her judges... Nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is. I don't know. Yeah, that is definitely a man who has just come down off his anesthetic. So your first blush reaction to this is the correct one, which is, wow, he's talking about Hillary Clinton getting murdered. Or justices being murdered. But then... then I just want to say, essentially, when Donald Trump is talking there, he is speaking as a man who has imagined that Hillary Clinton has won an election and is appointing justices. That is an important thing to note. Because part of the walkback was, oh, we're just talking about turning out Second Amendment people. I was like, no, 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 you imagined that Hillary Clinton won the election. You mentioned all the voter turnout shit was over. He frequently does. Yeah. He frequently portrays a situation where he lost. Like He talks about that like it's it's what's going to happen. Well, well, it kind of is. Paul Ryan's excuse for this is that it was a joke gone wrong. But I mean, listen to that clip. That does not sound like a man who's cracking a joke. He sounds like kind kind of a grim statement. It just sounds very dark. And it makes you wonder what exactly is it that would keep Paul Ryan from uh, endorsing, from, from maintaining his endorsement of Donald Trump? And I think the answer, frankly, is that if Donald Trump repudiated his supply side economics, tax cuts for the rich all the time doctrine, that would actually force Paul Ryan off the train. But short of that, no, it wouldn't. he would put I, up no, with anything. He does repudiate that, except for when he was on the teleprompter. But every other day. <laughs> except for when he gives it's, a, it is a giant true. speech saying he accepts this. It is true that policy-wise, Trump is all over the map. He says thing one day and, and, is, and then cites it as evidence that he believes that. Says another thing another day, and when it's convenient, he cites it as evidence that he believes that. But I do kind of agree with Zach that, that that's the only thing that would really offend Paul Ryan. No, right people must drop the game of what will it take for Republicans like Paul Ryan to... Oh, yeah, to, of course. Uh, it's not... Yeah, because, forget if it, it. because if it hasn't happened yet, it's never going to happen. And we may as well... All the people who continue to back Donald Trump may as well just, like, stop the, like, Hamlet Act and say, yeah, I back this guy wholeheartedly. No, I, wholeheartedly. Because at this point, is if you haven't changed your mind, you haven't changed your mind. Well, let's play the other game, which is... <laughs> and I'm really getting justifying... sick Justifying... Can I just say, I'm just really getting sick of people being like, Susan Collins broke with Republicans and she's, she broke with Trump. She's so brave, so courageous. Nine months after it was clear that Donald Trump thought Mexicans were rapists, Susan Collins is like, weighed in with her... With her fucking sagaciousness. Yeah. Many, many years after he revealed himself to be a birther. Yeah, who and everyone's says like vaccines cause autism. Everyone's like everyone's fapping the Sue Collins uh, so, decision making skills and it's like, come on, give, give the, me a break. The excuse for this was not that it was a joke gone bad. The main excuse for this is that what he was saying 
is not that, you know, maybe someone will assassinate Hillary Clinton. What he was saying is that Second Amendment supporters are a potent political force who will lobby against Hillary Clinton's Supreme Court justice appointments. That's bullshit. That is not what he meant. He was not even talking about people lobbying against appointments. He was talking about what happens after Hillary Clinton is elected. I just wanted to make it clear. This is the this is the line. And it's crap. It's crap. Everybody knows what it meant. Give me a break. The problem is when you, uh, you're, you, you're a rational person, so all right, well, let's look at what he said. And then you diagram the sentence, and it's just such a mess that he actually didn't really say anything. So that's why, that's why I think it's important to trust your first reaction to what he's saying. And even the, the guy who's sitting right behind him, who, yeah. who uh, immediately gasped. Yeah. I mean, he loved it, but he was still shocked. Yeah. I, I Just just as a sidebar, I don't recommend that grammarians go out there and try to diagram too many of Donald Trump's sentences because it's kind of like a Lovecraftian experience you don't want. You don't want for yourself. Yeah, I don't, you couldn't actually diagram yeah. it. But I'm just saying you try to deconstruct the sentence, you discover sure. there wasn't actually a sentence uttered. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, of course. But I want to go back to something that, 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 that Zach brought up right at the start. Um, you know, if this were a, put it in scare quotes, ordinary election between just a generic uh, conservative policymaker and a generic and Hillary Clinton, mm. uh, there would be a lot to say about uh, Clinton's policies, where they fall short. We've talked a lot about how she's kind of relentlessly focused on the affluent class and their concerns. She sees her solution towards e- income inequality being just simply diversifying an already affluent, uh, the affluent meritocracy of America. Um, but what's what's really unusual and difficult about this election is that Donald Trump is such a persistent and obvious menace that if I... I feel like anytime I'm getting over my skis talking about what Hillary Clinton's doing wrong and why she's wrong about something, I feel like I'm sort of a, a, a backwardsly enabling fascism to it's, occur. It's, it's a, a uh, amplified version of the Democratic Party's dilemma that it's been facing really since the mid-1980s um, when they became really electorally un- unable to compete with the Republican Party, which is the Democrats just move to the right particularly on economic issues, um, and then and then, and then then looked at their supporters and say, what are you going to do, vote for a Republican? You can't vote for a Republican. They hate, they hate in the 80s and 90s, it was black people, but now it's black people, gay people, Muslims, and immigrants. Um, and the, the bad side, what, what has happened essentially is that by, by sort of capitulating to the right, I think during the 80s, it's just, it's just allowed this steady movement rightward of the Republican Party. You mean the Democratic Party? Oh, well, on the Republican bo- Party too. Of both, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, so, and so now they can credibly say, look, it's us or the fascists. And what are you you know do? what's dismaying <laughs> while we're on the topic of assassination is that in 2008, when asked to justify her continued presence in the Democratic primary, if it was clear Barack Obama was going to win, Hillary Clinton said, well, you know what happened to Bobby Kennedy. And- right. Yeah, there are a lot of things from the 2008 race that are really ugly that do not hold up well. She our- immediately apologized. She wasn't like, I didn't say that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it wasn't me. She did. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I think she was kind of just speaking off the cuff when that happened. She was like, well, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll get shot. I, and, I might, you... might as well stay in. And it's like a horrible thing to say from a podium. But, you know, OK, maybe there'll be a meteor strike or something like, you know, th- crazy things happen. Why? I might as well stay in. It's true. You know? It's true. <laughs> yeah, there, <laughs> there could be a volcano. That's another really interesting thing about covering Donald Trump is that. Donald Trump is in many ways this very sweet, generous candidate who we've never seen before. But really? 
it's kind of still a lot, just a funhouse mirror of amplification of things that have happened prior prior to his to his emergence in our politics. Uh, it's 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 very familiar. It's just got this sort of like toxic icing on it, and we're really talking about just sort of the icing on the cake. We're forgetting that the cake still sucks. Right. He's he's become the the like really unacceptable amplification of things that I think particularly the Beltway media has like not wanted to grapple with that are yeah. at the heart of at least the way we talk about politics in the United States. Yeah. I mean, I was I was talking I was I was chatting on Twitter earlier today. Some uh, Spencer Ackerman, today? From the Guardian. Yes, just today um, posed a question. It was like, what happens? It was basically what happens if. Uh, if uh, if uh, Hillary Clinton wins and the Republicans have to retrench, do you think that it's going to end up with uh, Republican voters reverting to the status quo ante and like trying to be a reasonable party again, or will it be Trumpian movement conservative types attempting to continue to wage war on the conservative party and take over from within? And like I say, it's B. But when those Sunday morning shows after the election, provided Hillary Clinton wins the election, when those Sunday shows are impaneled, you're going to hear pundits, Beltway pundits, really desperately trying to like uh, build a temple to A, build a temple to we're still a center-right country, uh, and like wonder about whether, and insist that their God has not failed them. But but we're learning that, like, yeah, their God is dead. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> Sad. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. It's not a very good God. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, we have lots to discuss that's not about Donald Trump, and I hope you'll stick around for it. Uh, it's a really great show, but for the moment, we will be right back. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And welcome back. Uh, so two years ago this week, uh, Michael Brown and Darren, Officer Darren Wilson had their now famous fateful encounter in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, in which Brown was killed and left to sort of bleed out on the road. It led to no end of animosity and anxiety among the members of the Ferguson community. And that's animosity and anxiety uh, then cycled out, spread across the country, started a movement of sorts. And we're now going to talk about two years on how the protest movement that began in Ferguson has evolved and whether or not they've been politically successful in perhaps getting some kind of measure of 
certainty, maybe justice for people who are gunned down unnecessarily by police all across the country. Joining us to talk about this, um, one guy who who lived the Ferguson story probably a little too hard, uh, uh, Ryan Riley. You can say, hey, Ryan. Oh, hey, how are yeah, you? Yeah, that's like, <laughs> that's me cueing you to like jump in. Don't make it sound like I'm just sitting in an empty room. Um, <clears throat> and our pal Julia Craven is also here. Hi. So let's get into it right off the start. You guys have already taken a sort of a look back on what began in Ferguson. Uh, the protest movement that began there uh, have written the story about it. Uh, I believe Mariah Stewart was your uh, co-author on that. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So we took that. We did that piece uh, sort of last year, and I think it you know it holds up. Uh, it holds up pretty well. Um, there are a number of changes that have come about since since Ferguson, but I mean it's it's sort of on the scale of. It, it, I think it's not obviously as much as ultimately needs to happen. And there's actually been a little bit of, uh, I guess, regression um, in terms of some of the uh, the uh, things that were done after Ferguson in terms of the municipal courts in the area. Um, there was a state uh, law that was sort of put limits on how much cities could actually get um, off of traffic tickets as a percentage of their budget that was sort of tossed out. Um, so I think that, you know, there has been some some progress and there's, you know, been new lawsuits and there's been a lot of movement. In it. But I think really the biggest thing um, that you could really say, OK, here's what's really changed is is media coverage and um, sort of the way that these stories are approached. Um, these stories are getting um, a lot more attention, a lot more focus. Um, you know, not only from, you know, the media not, and not only from people, you know, online and from outside groups, but I mean, you know, from the Justice Department, um, I think as well, um, you know, there's only so much they can do and, you know, their resources are a little bit um, limited. But, you know, we've seen very big investigations that, you know, maybe even if they were done in the past before sort of Ferguson might not have gotten as much attention or, you know, sort of uh, gotten as much focus as they have um, in the years since. Now, of course, obviously, we we're now much more hyper aware of these these stories when 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 Black Americans are killed by cops, um, but we're still kind of no closer to actually getting to what looks like justice, or at least what feels to me like justice, where someone who shouldn't have been killed, uh, the p- people who did that killing are held accountable. Are we? Do, do you see somewhere up over our horizon a time in which? people are rightfully banged up for the mistakes they make? I mean, I think it's tough to get there. Um, you know, every time these report com- reports comes out, come out, you sort of look through them and you're like, wow. Um, you know, I mean, some of it is, it's just, it's, it's sort of like seems just like a lot and it seems like there's a huge sort of, you know, burden to overcome because every single one of these police departments they've looked at, there's just been such, such heavy, heavy problems. Um, and, you know, some of them are shared problems. Some of them are unique uh, to certain uh, police departments. But, you know, you sort of wonder if they were just to do this about on every police department in the country, what we what we would turn up and what we would find. That's something that really just, I mean, can't happen. It's a very, very resource intensive um, way of going about it. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's sort of like picking off one police department at a time is not maybe the most effective way uh, of, of going about, you know, making um, wide changes. But the problem is, is that there's really not a way for the federal government. And there are some things that the federal government can do, but there's not, you know, lo- policing is a local issue and it's largely controlled locally, lo- largely controlled on the state level. Um, and there's 
there's only so much I think that the federal government can do and say, okay, here's the deal. Here's what has to happen. You know, they can require uh, police departments to do certain things to get certain amounts of money, but you know, the political will really has to exist in local communities to sort of force change. Um, so that I think has be, maybe been um, one of the more effective uh, things. Is at least it's getting attention on the local level and, and sort of forcing change, whether it be you know through replacing people and, you know, running people for elections or just, you know, suing a town or that sort of thing. Because, I mean, there has been, you know, if you look at the Ferguson government, what it looked like and what it looks like now, um, it's not quite, uh, you know, the proportions aren't totally representative, but, you know, certainly there, I think it, it's an even split between black and white members on this, uh, the city council now um, in a town that's majority black. Um, but that was nowhere near, you know, I think it, I mean, there had, you know, there, it was not representative uh, before this, nor was the police force. And now we see, you know, um, we have an African-American officer in charge of the police force in Ferguson as well. Um, and I, but I think really the, you know, the most changes are really going to come as a result of, of Ferguson being forced to do things, not because they decided to do things on their, on their own, because that just wasn't working for so many years. We were talking to Mark Lamont Hill last week about his book. One of the things we didn't get into in our discussion, but it's really prominent in his book. It actually talks about it right up front is that Ferguson, the whole existence of this town and the way it's and, and, and the way it's become um, a majority African-American community and the way uh, St. Louis County kind of has like used Ferguson as their uh, means of earning income by ticketing people. This is kind of this is all based in kind of like an ancient racist stain uh, yeah, from post reconstruction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Is do you, do you think that people aren't talking enough about just how uh, really old and ancient in American culture uh, that these kind of white supremacist policies of yesteryear are still really causing a lot of intractable problems today? I don't think we do. Um, because one of the things that I struggle with that um, Ryan was highlighting is how we put, um, we diversify the police force, we diversify the city council, et cetera, et cetera, but what is being done to actually change the institution at the root, you know? And so, like, we see this in Baltimore, right? Severely redlined. Their DOJ report just dropped this week, um, and it's terrible. It's really horrible. They're doing um, public strip searches. Um, the N-word is not considered a racial slur in a lot of cases. <laughs> right. Um, the school police are operating as an arm of the Baltimore Police Department. So they're treating schools like they treat neighborhoods. And they had over 300,000 stops, pedestrian stops, in a six-year period. And it's amazing. Like, this is crazy. I don't think people appreciate how these this kind of police activity, like stop and frisk, it really right. is kind of this sort of, like, revenue generation scheme. Because once you get people in the system, they're paying court fees. Yep. They are paying to uh, participate in various interdiction programs. Uh, they have to pay uh, – uh, they, 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 get, they get bunged up, and suddenly they're entering debt. And someone makes money off of everyone's indebtedness. Right. You have states in the South who um, who pay local jails to lock people up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, and, and you saw this in Baltimore. I mean, and you see it in a lot of cities where it's just and it, there's just a t complete tolerance and acceptance of the idea of an officer locking someone up because they gave them attitude or because they said something right. they didn't like. There's like totally just completely accepted. No one's ever punished for it, that sort of thing. And one of the things, I mean, there are a ton, a ton of shocking things in the report. But, one, I mean, one of the things that really just, you know, sticks out to me, 
besides all these sort of really abusive stories is while a DOJ monitor was on a ride along with the Baltimore Police Department, <laughs> a sergeant literally told <laughs> literally told a uh, officer to make something up and and sort of and committed an unconstitutional stop. Like the officer right. said, I don't really have a reason to stop these people. And literally in the presence of a DOJ official, they were like, oh, just make something up. Like this, I, I was trying to think of what the equivalent was. This is like, you know, maybe if you had like someone working the sandwich line and like, you know, and the health inspector comes in and they both go to the bathroom and like, you know, the guy comes out of the toilet stall and like gives the nod to the health inspector and then walks out the door without washing his hands. Like, I mean, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, it's like right in front of everything. You both have spent a lot of time in Baltimore as well, and now we're dealing with the repercussions of the fact that Freddie Gray, his death, which was ruled a homicide, seems to have right. no one. There's no murderer in, in the in this case. It's mysterious. Uh, another. This is another thing that Mark touches on in his book. Freddie, Freddie Gray's essential crime was making eye contact with a cop. Which is uh, very Jim Crow esque. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, what what is what is this, what is the state of the community in Baltimore right now? Like after all of what's happened. Well, just based on my reporting, they never really expected anyone to be held accountable for his death, and that's because of experience. Um, we see so often that these police officers are not held accountable. Maybe they're charged, but they're not convicted, right? So we've seen an uptick and the number of officers charged for murder and manslaughter. Last year, it was 15, up from an average of about five or so a year. And they rarely get convicted. I don't think any officers got convicted last year. And so another thing about this DOJ report is that going through it, I'm just like, from the people that I've interviewed and talked to, this is just basically a federal report of like it's confirming what they've been saying for decades about how they get treated in this city. We <clears throat> round about the time anything like this happens and, and and a fissure between a community and its police force is exposed. You'll have, you know, a lot of chin scratchers come in and say, well, what we need is more community policing. And there are obviously some good community policing models. Yeah. Out there, um, in, in fact, I, I believe I believe that uh, in Dallas, uh, their their police force is considered to be one of the models of community policing, um, which is which which makes what's happened in Dallas maybe a little extra extra tragic. Um, but how difficult is to change a culture uh, in which the goal is to make arrests again and again and again, just for the purpose of presenting uh, cops presenting stakeholders with evidence of activity if not achievement to one in which you do community policing which is in theory uh, a type of policing that doesn't necessarily lead to a magnitude of arrests but leads to greater trust within communities can a culture be changed like that overnight? Are, can you literally send like a white knight police chief into these places to to fix these problems? Or is it like we were talking about redlining, so, such a deeply ingrained and white supremacist type of thinking that it's hard to extract and, and dispose of? 
Well, I think, you know, the reason people sort of focus on community policing is because it's something that sounds nice and it can sort of mean whatever you want it to mean to a lot of people. You know, oh, my version of community policing looks like this. My version looks like this. And that sort of allows people to have the tougher conversations about, oh, this system we've had in place for like generations is terrible and corrupt and like just the worst. And like we're fundamentally what we're doing is kind of immoral and wrong in terms of holding officers uh, account or not holding officers accountable more accurately. So if you just focus on community policing, it's like, oh, that sounds nice. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, let's hand out some ice cream in the neighborhood or let's, you know, I mean, you saw in the example of, you know, oh, I'm sure that that uh, that city that, that you know, unconstitutionally pulled over a woman and, you know, said, oh, here's an here's an ice cream cone and then recorded it and posted on video. triggering her like, at all. That right. was that was a crazy, <laughs> that was like, crazy st- idea. And like, and like then promote that and like, you know, like they did it, you know, it just and then promote that like, oh, here's like. We had no reason to stop her. Here's an ice cream cone. Like, I mean, th- that's a cultural problem, right? And that's like right. something that, like, oh, they're going to get the likes and the clicks. Like, but they're like, this isn't actually like going to any like, you know, deeper issues. Like, right? This isn't just about like, you know, putting up Facebook videos. Or like, this is, I mean, this is a like, and, you know, there's other examples you can bring as well. I know there's another police department that I think, you know, bragged about their community policing, which was like shutting down vendors who were like selling things on the side on the sidewalk without like permits or something. That was their version of community policing, yeah. which is like, I mean, this the, like so you can and you can, you know, you can apply for a bunch of grants and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like but community policing can basically mean whatever you want. And it allows people to sort of avoid the conversation about like, oh, actually, this is like fundamentally terrible and corrupt that we're not holding our officers accountable. It sounds to me like in most cases, community yeah. policing is a PR scheme rather than a substantively it, pursued it is, criminal and justice. None of it's addressing the fact that modern day police forces came out of slave patrols. Right. <laughs> yep, it's like no one wants to talk about that. They don't want to talk about redlining. No one wants to talk about how like, oh, maybe the poor black people who live here and have always lived here for decades are here because, you know, they're stuck. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, we're still uh, living with the Reconstruction Black Codes, but we will have to discuss that another time. Uh, uh, thanks, you guys, for, for being here. Congratulations on your article, uh, The Ferguson Protests Worked, I believe it was called. Ryan, Julia, Mariah Stewart has been nominated for an award. Uh, it's a very good. Please check it out. Uh, thanks, guys, for being on the show. Thanks. Thank you. And we'll be right back. We're back. Uh, welcome right now to Zach Carter. Sing Hi, Boston. everybody. And we're very excited. On the phone with us right now, we have Nation Institute fellow. She is a she is a journalist and author. Her new book comes out August 23rd. It is called Necessary Trouble. It is about an exploration of protest movements that have arisen in the post-crash years of America. Please welcome Sarah Jaffe to the show. Clap, 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 clap. I like the applause, guys. Thanks for having me. We do what we can. So, uh, Sarah, tell us, tell us uh, what what inspired you to go out and, and write this book. You know, I was doing this reporting already, and uh, it was years of you know I I credit my career and its existence and being a labor reporter in this era with you know eleven percent union density to the fact that the Wisconsin protesters took over their state capital and didn't leave for a while over you know, wonky things like collective bargaining rights. Um, And then Occupy Wall Street kicked it all into another gear. And so this is already what I was doing. 
and by you know spring of 2012, I I was like, this is this is a thing that's happening that seems to be continuing to happen. That maybe this is a trend. And I basically was fiddling with the idea for this book since May of 2012. And um, I was just talking with my agent about how it actually wound up coming out at exactly the right time. So the fact that I was struggling to write a proposal for two and a half years probably ended up for the best. (laughs) (laughs) Timing is everything in this world. Well, you study a lot of different you study a lot of different protest movements from, you know, Tea Party people to Occupy. Um, What what do you I mean, what can you say about these different types of of protest movements that uh, that you learned that they have in common? What do they share? Um, I mean, the the reason that we stuck the title that we did on this book, which was it was really difficult coming up with a title for it, was was that the thing that really all of these movements have in common is some form of direct action or civil disobedience or, you know, what what everybody's favorite uh, Congressman John Lewis, who who just had his own sit in on the you know floor of the Congress, calls necessary trouble. Mm-hmm. So that's really the thing. And that's really why I thought it was important to include the Tea Party in this book, because you know, there's a tendency among sort of the media class in D.C. and New York to just think that the Tea Party is only this thing that is funded by the Koch brothers that elect, you know, jerks like Scott Walker, which is a thing that is real and calls itself the Tea Party. But there are also like legitimately pissed off people that while I disagree with most of what they want out of politics, like I understand why people are mad right now. I feel like a couple of years ago you could watch the daily show or the Colbert report. And when they would talk about protesters, there would be sort of this sort of this, this kind of, you know, they, they did this whole thing on the ball where, where they had people come together and say, Hey, we all want to be reasonable and be quiet. And the problem with code pink is that they're too loud. Do you feel like the, the sort of public perception of protest movements has shifted uh, since, since then? Yeah, I do. And, and the thing that I think is interesting is, you know, I went to, to graduate school in journalism and one of the things that I learned in graduate school in journalism was that the media doesn't like to cover protest movements. It doesn't find them legible. It doesn't really understand who to talk to when you have a whole bunch of people who are, are causing trouble together. It, the media understands leaders. It understands hierarchies. It understands um, elected officials. It doesn't understand protests. Mm-hmm. And so to see the fact that like people actually covered that, and I, I think in the book I credit that a little bit to the fact that like Fox News hated Barack Obama so much that it encouraged a protest movement, and then because <laughs> Fox News was doing it, but right, but like because Fox News was like the Tea Party is legitimate and it is serious and it is real and it is blah 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 whatever all of these words, um, then CNN started doing that, and then like really mainstream news outlets sort of all fetishized the Tea Party. But what that did was actually show the media positively covering people making trouble for, you know, which is such a rare, rare thing to happen. And so we've seen this whole shift in the way these things are talked about. And now, you know, I watch like sort of mainstream white, you know, middle of the road commentators struggling to sort of understand Black Lives Matter in a way that is fascinating often wrong but fascinating one of the things i really like about your book is i, I think you you think you, you go you talk about how and there's sort of another sort of like weird media treatment of protest movements in which they tend to they tend to approach like any protest movement with okay but first thing first what are your concrete set of demands and you do such a good job distilling the sort of problem that gave that spawned uh these protest movements that it makes you wonder why the media doesn't say what were your concrete set of demands, Wall Street? Why did you want an economy that looked like this that's so bad? What 
but but knowing knowing that this is kind of like more people who feel powerless finally connecting to a sense of power first and foremost before demands start getting written down what do you think it is about the movements that have emerged in this post-crash era that that has allowed them to be so durable because i i want people to know that if if you read sarah jaffe's book um you're going to learn a lot about what the occupy movement has become for for instance uh since they left zuccotti park and it's going to it's going to open your eyes to some of the great good they've been doing but what do you think has made um some of these movements so durable in the face of media skepticism and of course the forces that deny these people their power in the first place i mean i think you know you there's a saying in the labor movement that the boss is always the best organizer in this case people are still screwed yeah nothing has gotten better you know (laughs) and like you hear these politicians with like you know i mean the fact that hillary clinton had like her response to donald trump's make america great again is america is already great is like do you understand how many people out there in this country right now don't have jobs the jobs they have are shitty they have, you know, $50,000 in student debt that they're never going to pay off. Um, they can't afford to go to school in the first place. Their kid is, you know, whatever. They A thousand teachers just got laid off in Chicago. Um, like, I could just go on and on and on and on and on about the things that people are mad about. And, like, not all of them have a perfectly written policy platform, although more of them than you would think have a perfectly written policy platform. Right. The Vision for Black Lives, right, the Vision for Black Lives document that just came out is, is an incredible thing that took a year of research and thinking and writing. And, like, you know, whenever people say, what is their demands right now, I'm going to, like, print it out and roll it up and hit them with it. Um, but, like, <laughs> you know, people are mad. And that keeps people coming out because they're not, things aren't getting better. Right. The America is already great again line is something that resonates really well with the professional class. Right. For whom things are already pretty good. Yeah. Right. Why are people voting for Donald Trump? Why are people voting for Bernie Sanders? I don't know, because the mainstream, you know, sort of center right to left, center left consensus has failed them utterly. That's why. So in in on Twitter, at least, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, Twitter fights here, because they're they're. You, you see these things going back and forth all the time between people who are not quite media elites, but who who are not quite, uh, you know, grassroots rabble rousers, um, where, where they fight about, OK, is is the cause of all of our trouble, you know, class injustice is the cause of all of our trouble, racial injustice um, is if there there can only be one of one cause to 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 problems. Um, did you see those kinds of divisions uh, among the protesters when you were when you were you know reporting on them, studying them, talking with them? I mean, the thing that I think is really fascinating right now is that um, those divisions are mostly from people who read them in books. Um, I think, like you're saying, right, it may not necessarily be like media elites, but I don't see a lot of the people that I'm running into, for instance, in the encampment outside of City Hall Plaza in New York right now um, fighting on Twitter. I see them organizing people and getting them to come out to events. Um, And so... The thing that I found is really, really fascinating is when you go to a place like St. Louis, and I was there, you know, a year and a half ago, and I really look forward to going back on book tour to see what's, you know, what's gone on since I was there. But, you know, I'm talking to people who were organizers with the Fight for 15, who had been, you know, uh, St. Louis was the third city to go on strike in, in the Fight for 15. It's a Fight for a $15 minimum wage. Right, yeah, right. So these are people who had been organizing for higher wages in their workplace, for a while, and when Michael Brown was killed, which was, you know, two years ago yesterday, um, 
they went out and they explicitly thought, like, how do I use these skills that I learned as an organizer on this campaign, but also how does this connect to this campaign I did? And so, you know, I talked to um, a member of the Fight for 15 who was telling me about the die-in that they did at a convenience store that they were targeting um, because of its low wages, and they did a die-in specifically, you know, to tie this all to Mike Brown, because the people who work in these low-wage jobs, right, the working class in this country is, in fact, mostly black and Latino. It is mostly women. It is, like, all of these things connect in a way that I don't think you can separate. And this is what, you know, people toss around the word intersectionality, right? Hillary Clinton famously, like, tweeted the word intersectionality. And most yeah. people, I don't think, really grasp what it means, which is that it means that, like, if you are, you know, there's a great line in the book from Diamond Lachison, who is a, a young woman in Ferguson. And she's like, the first time that I came out to everybody as queer was this movement because I didn't have to start being, I didn't have to keep being black in one space and queer in another space and a woman in another space. I, this was a movement that was about all of those things. Mm-hmm. And like that to me is intersectionality, right? She's also a low-wage worker. She's also, you know, was understood that like being screwed around by her boss was also keeping her, you know, down. That like, And that's yeah, so it's it's fascinating to me that the people on the ground really understand that these things are connected and are really bringing them together, and that people on the internet sort of want to fight about it to like I don't know score points with each other in a way that I just think is useless. This is this is one of the reasons I can't recommend your book more highly because you do such a great job explicating the ways in which these protest movements have been cross pollinating and actually achieving things for one another in ways that I don't think people completely appreciate. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, the book, the book is called necessary trouble. It comes out August 23rd. Highly recommend. It's very, very good. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show and I hope you'll come back. Yeah. Thank you. All right. And we will be right back. And we are back. I am across the table in our studio from Zach Carter. Hello, everyone. Everyone's demented friend. And we're so excited because on the phone with us right now, literally on the campaign trail in the 19th District of New York, Democratic uh, congressional nominee Zephyr Teachout is back on our show. We're so glad to have you. Welcome. I love being on your show. I love it. We love it, too. We love it, too. Um, so let's start out with just the, probably the most interesting thing I read recently, and I just wanted to see if like this concerns you at all. I read that you received the quote-unquote endorsement from Andrew Cuomo, who uh, who you once called very corrupt. Are you worried? Oh no, I'm 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 not worried. You know, when I'm in Congress, I want to be and will be. Um, you know, really working on economic development, getting, you know, the resources we need for infrastructure. And um, I'll be working with the governor on it. So, um, you know, honestly, what people care about here is, we've talked about this a little bit before, but people are really, really independent-minded. Yeah, I've, I've heard that about your district. Well, just for the context of our listeners, uh, for those of you who don't know, Zephyr Teachout ran for governor in the last gubernatorial cycle. 
against Andrew Cuomo and did quite well. Did not win, but did quite well. Um, and, and did very well here in this yeah. in, in my district. Um, if it if it make if it makes a difference, I could, Andrew Cuomo did not actually mention you by name. He said he just supported the Democratic nominee. I think he was a little glum about it. So advantage you in that in that uh, in that respect. So Zephyr, um, last week you unveiled a, uh, a. I guess it's it's new for your campaign, but a lot of these ideas are ideas you've been working with for a long time. Uh, but a new economic uh, platform, and uh, I, I believe there were five items, and I went through them, and it seemed to me like a seven, really seven. Seven. Uh, well, counting is really hard for the economy and numbers reporter. Um, so, but all seven of these these items seem to me to reflect sort of a common interest in antitrust policy, um, and I wanted to just sort of pick your brain a little bit about why you're focused on these types of issues, um, it, particularly in a in a district in in uh, in upstate New York, which is, you know, uh, I, I guess not known for uh, you know these these giant um, monopoly no. corporations no, like. No, I mean, uh, we had IBM, but IBM left. So, um, the you know, and the, right now. Um, there's two things I want to say about this. One is it is the heart, independent businesses and self-employed farmers uh, are the heart and soul of this region. Um, and they have gotten the shaft over the last 30 years. Um, and one of the reasons I thought it was important to pull together these different policy ideas that, yes, we've talked about a lot of them, um, not all, but a lot of them together, is I actually think as a country – um, let alone as a region, uh, we have to pay attention to the fact that um, we don't have a policy to support independent businesses, and it's really showing. It's really showing in our downtowns. Um, it's really showing in our uh, rural communities. And it has these massive secondary effects. Like, if you don't have a place where you can buy socks and underwear uh, downtown, then maybe you don't go downtown. And then that has an effect on the uh, business owner next door. Or pharma, um, which, uh, you know, you, as I think we actually talked about once, um, but pharma is getting so concentrated, and even the, um, the, the local pharmacies are getting pushed out because the big trunk, drug companies won't sell to them. Oh, wow. They'll only sell to, um, to uh, companies that they have pre-existing relationships with. So you, you push out your local pharmacy, well, then people aren't coming downtown to go to the local pharmacy, and then it has an effect on all these other uh, businesses and on civic life. So it's like that, you know, when you pull the thread in a sweater and it all unravels. Yeah. This metaphor ends up working or whether I, I lose the metaphor. <laughs> There's well, well, so let's... much that depends on supporting independent businesses. And I, I got to say, I don't think either Democrats or Republicans have been the friend of independent business in the last few decades. This this is a different critique of, of the economy than what, say, you know, Donald Trump uh, offered earlier this week. I mean, un, in, under Trump's vision, the problem, I mean, he, he talks about trade policy, but he spent a lot of time talking about how just ta taxes are too high on corporations. You're focused instead on corporations themselves being too big and that having a lot of downstream effects um, aside from just the, you know, the immediate, you know, this bank is really big or whatever it is. Um, do you think do you think that the public is ready for a message like that? Or, or, or do you are you worried that you need to have a more detailed sort of tax policy uh, that, that maybe addresses kitchen table concerns more directly? Well, well we do address one, you know, point four um, uh, is uh, addresses taxes. And everywhere I go, I hear about property taxes. And a lot of this relates to New York State. I can speak less about elsewhere. But in New York State, um, counties have to take on Medicaid reimbursement costs, uh, which leads to property taxes really being out of control. 
and um, and then the overall the other sort of way in which uh, federal policy really interacts, you know, some about state policy, but is that infrastructure is really important for independent businesses. Absolutely important. You need like let's talk about sewage systems and updating sewage systems. Um, updating uh, water infrastructure is absolutely essential. I was just uh, in Sharon Springs. Their um, their plans to build a new, a really big tourist destination, but real concerns that the water infrastructure is so old that they don't have the capacity. Um, and then on water infrastructure has other impacts, like uh, you know effluent going into streams. But um, it used to be that basically the federal government would be actively supporting infrastructure state governments some, and then local governments more like 7%, um, uh, you know, depending on where you are. Once local governments become more and more the only point at which um, infrastructure funding is happening, because you have to do something about your water infrastructure, otherwise your school keeps getting shut down because the water main keeps breaking, um, as, uh, as, happened, as happened in Millbrook recently, um, that then has an effect on the local taxes, which then really makes it harder for independent mm. businesses. So this relates to tax policy, but I think it's, I, I just think there's been a lot of superficial talk yeah. um, inter- about like what's really happening in our economy. And what we're doing now, by the way, is not helping. Because if you look at um, independent businesses that employ other people, and that's just one way to look at it, not just somebody who has you know filed the paperwork, but actually has other employees, um, there's a great article in the Washington Post that showed, you know, there's been a, there's been a really significant collapse in um, these uh, independent businesses that employ other people. I'm interested in something you brought up uh, just just now in the podcast. Uh, you were kind of talking a little bit, uh, maybe like Robert Putnam often talked about about civic life um, and the way uh, dislocation in the com- the economy and and disconnection to a geographic source of economic vitality. Uh, tends to sap the civic life of a community. Um, when you're, you, you've talked a lot, obviously, about corruption, and you, you've, you've, you've talked a lot about antitrust. Are you finding it? Um, are you finding that your, your bigger ideas are more applicable to an argument about how uh, economic equality brings back a sense of civic centeredness? Because it's not something people talk about a lot. This is grassroots up. This is what people talk about all the time. Um, uh, you know, I was at a, um, a a diner in Hamden, and the diner owner was talking about how um, uh, she was one of the ones who brought up, you know, buying socks and underwear, and um, how the absence of that makes it harder for her business, um, but also it means, uh, you know, and in her business is the diner is where people come and talk to each other. Yeah. Um, and uh, but that's just one example that she sees the the civic effects and that people don't want to feel as isolated as they feel. I feel like maybe the the Democrats tend to really relentlessly focus on professional class concerns. And uh, I living in D.C. and also having uh, visited other cities, I, I found that like. A lot of times the professional class, when they talk about the urban environment, they go chasing trends like Richard Florida trends. It tends to gentrify communities. It tends to create, you know, like uh, what they call vibrant neighborhoods based on certain like arts and tech district. Um, Do you think that it's important now for the Democrats to maybe get a refocus on that and try to leave some of those fads behind and actually talk to people where they live? 
well, sure. And I, I mean, part of, uh, you know, part of this is addressed. Look, this is addressed to what I'm going to be doing in Congress. I want to be on the, um, uh, the Small Business Committee. I want to be on the Ag Committee. I want to really be a voice on these issues and really be representing um, the independent business owners every day in Washington because I do think their voices get totally ground out. Basically, you don't, uh, you know, you don't have a lobbyist if you're yeah <laughs> independent farmer, but you sure have one if you're Dean Foods. Um, I, I just want to address uh, one thing that I think is important. I think everybody needs art. I think yeah. everybody, you know, needs music, and I care a lot about art and music in schools. And I don't think this should be sort of a vision where we're concentrating it in particular communities. This is just part of what it means to be human and to be part of um, part of a lively, thriving community as independent and as, as well as independent businesses, which are also really important. Well, we've got time for one more question here, uh, Zephyr. So, I mean, you sort of uh, garnered a reputation as someone who was who was a progressive in in a swing district. I mean, your district is sort of nominally Democratic, but Republicans have held it very recently, um, including, I believe, right now. Uh, does does that reputation, yeah, does does that reputation hurt you in uh, in in a, in a sort of more moderate kind of place? I actually think that people are really interested in who you are and what you've done, and the labels don't matter that much. Um, so what people want to know is, you know, who are you going to fight for? Uh, why should I believe that you're not going to sell out like everybody else? Um, and do you understand my issues? Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 the label stuff just doesn't, I don't know, people are pretty smart. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, there's a strong BS detector and, um, and they're more interested in substance than, than labels. All right. Well, Zephyr Tijat, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a little faith that people... Always great to be on the show. We're <laughs> glad to have you. We're glad to have you, and we hope you come back soon. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us, and we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by journalist and author Sarah Jaffe, Democratic congressional nominee for New York's 19th District, Zephyr Teachout, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Julia Craven, Arthur Delaney, and Ryan Riley. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.